Welcome, everyone. My name is Tom Pritchard, and welcome to Marriage Champions Podcast, where I interview marriage champions, people who are passionate about strengthening marriages and families. Today, my guest is Dr. George Kenworthy. George is the founder, CEO, and president of Hope for the Hurting Home. Hope for the Hurting Home seeks to change the culture by raising up an army of marriage counselors to help hurting marriages. George has created the Friends First Responders Program to help people help friends in struggling marriages. And he's created a program called Discernment Counseling, which helps church leaders, attorneys, and others help individuals in struggling marriages. He's an author, pastor, teacher. Thank you for joining me today, George. It's my privilege to be with you, Tom. Well, you know, I, I see all those things. You're a pastor, you're an author, um, but I also, uh, you're a trustee on a Christian university, but I also see that you've taught Hebrew. How did you ever get into teaching Hebrew? <laughs> well, I enjoyed Hebrew. I like things that are hard. So in high school, it was math science because those were the hard courses. I uh, get to uh, seminary, it's languages. So Greek and Hebrew were challenging to me and I enjoyed doing them. And when I got to Trinity Seminary in Chicago, I'd already had two years of Hebrew. Uh, so I sat in as a as a freshman at Trinity with the seniors, and then went on to take rapid reading, Hebrew, advanced Hebrew grammar, advanced Hebrew exegesis. And then I began teaching uh, Hebrew while I was still in school at Trinity Seminary. And then I've taught Hebrew at a number of seminaries since. So what, what has that uh, done for you in terms of knowing Hebrew, in terms of your faith, and even in the area of marriage, which we're going to be talking about? Well, it, the two biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew, the advantage of Greek is grammar and syntax. You can learn a great deal about the structure of sentences. You can, you know, purpose, uh, you have a purpose statement and a result statement. You can kind of di diagram the New Testament easily. The Hebrew language is very graphic and pictorial. Uh, so the strength of Hebrew is in the words, word pictures that you uh, can see and create. Uh, they give you a much better view of what the Bible is saying. So uh, when I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, for example, in Psalm 23, and he restores my soul. The word translated soul is nephesh, which as you look this up and find out what it really means in Hebrew, uh, nephesh is the word for uh, uh, one's sense of self, uh, one's sense of life, uh, one's you know, sense of vitality. And so you can say, well, in the context then, when I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, God restores my life, my sense of salt. And it's just it, that sort of thing. It's over and over again. You see uh, in Hebrew, you know, fret not yourself, Psalm 37, because of evildoers. That is a, a causative reflexive verb in Hebrew. That is something you don't cause to happen to yourself. So and, and the word means don't make your face red or get hot. So because of evildoers, don't cause yourself to get hot in the face, because if you are, you're doing it to yourself. Again, it, you know, the, it's, it's the Hebrew that fulfills those pictures. And then for, you know, practical purposes, you know, for helping people with their uh, marriage and whatever, you can say, you know what, it's not your husband or wife that's getting you upset. You're doing that to yourself, because uh, here, Psalm 37 you know, don't fret, don't get yourself all worked up because of something somebody did to you. Because if you are, it's not your spouse doing it, you're doing it to yourself. Well, that's fascinating. We could uh, spend a lot of time just going into <laughs> Hebrew and marriage, maybe some on another podcast, we can get into that. But uh, I, George, maybe just share a little bit of your background. Where did you grow up? Uh, 
you know, how did you end up where you are now? I grew up in Flint, Michigan. Uh, so Michigander, still a diehard University of Michigan fan uh, and a Detroit Tiger fan, I'm ashamed to say, but I have been my, my entire life, well, a Lions fan too, for that matter, but grew up in Flint. I have a Missouri Synod Lutheran background and I went to church every Sunday with my parents, hardly ever missed, went through catechism. And in the catechism uh, at the graduation, you're given a life verse by the pastor, just arbitrarily picks a verse. Mine was seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Mm. And I was an achiever and I achieved some measure of success in, in uh, high school. Uh, and as I was graduating from high school, that verse came back to me, uh, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then God used that verse to help me evaluate my life because I was heading for a career in math science, doing something else. And then in the light of that verse, I had to ask, is the kingdom of God first? And I had to say, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. So I went down to Concordia Lutheran Junior College in Ann Arbor, despite uh, the pleas of my advisors and uh, in the high school and friends who said, don't waste your time. You can do many more important things than this. But anyway, I had to check out Christianity. So I went down to Concordia Lutheran Junior College in Ann Arbor to investigate Christianity to see if it could merit being first in my life. I mean, that's why I was there. Mm -hmm. Met a young man by the name of Dieter Walski. He lived his faith. I, he'd read the Bible you know, every night on his knees uh, and then pray. One time I watched him pray uh, for an hour and a half. And he only ended his prayer because he hyperventilated. And as I asked him why he was doing what he was doing, he wanted to become more like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that experience shaped me so that when that roommate was killed in a motorcycle accident, wow. it was at his funeral service, I realized Dieter Walski had something I didn't and I wanted it. So at that funeral service in Detroit, Michigan, I got down on my knees and said, Lord Jesus, I don't know whatever it is that Dieter had, but I now know I don't have it and I pray that you'll give it to me. Uh, and I was born again uh, in a, a chapel in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, and then after that, I became dangerous for Jesus, according to friends at Concordia. <laughs> I came back and started leading my fellow classmates to Christ, you know, guys studying for the ministry, did an evangelism thing uh, on campus. And we just saw God do some incredible things. So, and then the rest is kind of history. I, I kind of carved out my notions about being a pastor while still a student. So you're, you were on the pastor track after that. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. When I started at Concordia, I always was on, they, they call it pre-ministerial, but it was a pastor's track. So mm -hmm. that's where in the Missouri Central Lutheran system, everyone is a, a Greek Hebrew major, whether you want to be or not. And they, there was no mercy. Uh, I had 90 in my freshman class in the pre-ministerial class. And because of Greek, we lost 60 of those classmates that wow. they couldn't cut Greek and they then... There's no mercy. If you, if, you do, if you don't know Greek, well, you can't truly be a pastor. It's kind of a rather strange view of the importance of Greek, but that's what they did. Well, um, kind of moving on, uh, what, um, you know, we're going to be talking about marriage and stuff. How did you meet your wife? What, uh, how did that transpire? I, when I went off to Concordia, my parents had built a new home in Flushing, Michigan. I like to tell people, right downstream from the Flint River and the sewage disposal plant is this town called Flushing. Uh, and anyway, my wife uh, uh, went there to Flushing High School. My parents are building this house, two houses down uh, from where Joan's parents were. And as I was checking out the new house, I saw this really gorgeous woman, uh, you know, out in the yard periodically. And then I calculated ways to meet her. And then we met, began dating, and then ultimately she became my wife. 
Well, great, great. Well, let's let's talk about um, marriage and how you got as a in terms of ministry, how you got involved with that. What uh, uh, what what opened the door to your getting into marriage? Because it doesn't sound like that was your plan from the get go, is to start a marriage ministry and be a marriage. Chair. No, no, you can kind of say that was the anti plan. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And senior pastors of growing churches don't, you know, we are paid to lead uh, and to preach. And that's what we do. And I, I was pastoring a church in Iowa city that was a growing church. And any pastor is going to have people come to them with marriage problems. I don't care who you are. They're going to come. You at least have to have one uh, session with them. And people were coming to me and wanting my help. Uh, I had had some advanced level courses in counseling. And it wasn't a matter that I didn't know what to do. It's just senior pastors are not prayed, uh, are not, paid uh, to do counseling. You know, we're, it's, it's preach and lead. So I said, no, I can't do this. And then God convicted me with 1 John three seventeen. How can you say you got the love of God in your heart and close your heart to your brother? I couldn't shake that. And I then came back and said, well, I got to do something, but I'm still a senior pastor and we don't do counseling. So then I determined what I would do is equip because I didn't see myself as one who uh, was committed to discipleship and equipping the saints to do ministry. So it was back in, oh gosh, it would have been about 1976, I began equipping uh, women, usually first, uh, to do counseling. And then that woman that I trained would turn around and, and equip a man. And then we'd raise up a, an army of folks to do marriage and family counseling in the church. So, so how, did that, uh, how did that look? What was the, <clears throat> how did you know what to do? Did you use other tools out there? Did you just kind of invent things as you went along or how did yeah, you? Well, I wish I was smart enough to just figure out what to do on my own. I started out with Norman Wright's premarital counseling. He has a little book called premarital counseling and he's got a number of sessions that are built on the Taylor Johnson test, which is a diagnostic tool that used to be quite commonly used. It's not used so much anymore. Uh, but that, that's what I did. I use Norman Wright stuff. Now I don't, apart from the Taylor Johnson test, I don't do much of anything of what I did early on, um, but that's where I started. And there's like six sessions that Norman Wright would recommend, do the Taylor Johnson test and then these sessions. And then uh, I have always been an evaluator. So with anything that we did, we'd get back to folks after we helped them and say what worked, what didn't work. And then a basis upon evaluating what's working and not working, we would constantly be revising the tools. And as I said, eventually get to the point where Apart from the Taylor Johnson test, we don't use much of what Taylor or what uh, Norman Wright uh, had in his book these days. So, what what did you end up developing? That did you develop your own diagnostic tool? And uh, well, we have one now that's called. It's a, right now the name is a personal assessment uh, inventory. Uh, that is a diagnostic tool that uh, I've got a, a gal on staff who has her PhD in industrial organizational psychology. And uh, she spent three years on that with two master's level research assistants uh, perfecting the tool. We've now have norms uh, for it based on several thousand people that have taken the, uh, the test. So we have developed that. I still use the Taylor Johnson test. It's a, it's a good diagnostic tool. It helps pinpoint where people are emotionally. But, you know, Prepare and Rich doesn't do that as well for me, at least. Mm -hmm. uh, other tools don't. But this one is, it will help you see where somebody is emotionally as well, as well as where they are in terms of their temperament, and then give you a sense of uh, how does a husband look at his wife and how does a wife look at the husband? 
And then it will have attitude scores. What's the attitude of the husband toward himself and the attitude of the wife toward herself and then toward one another, all of which is extremely useful in getting a sense of where people are in terms of all the emotional angst that usually is what kills a marriage. Yeah. So what, what, what's, what do you need to, what does one need to do to be effective in counseling a couple? I mean, you talk about having a tool to basically give you insights into where they're at. Yeah. Um, how, how would you use that? And then how would you go, where would you go from there? Well, it's like anybody who knows Jesus can be effective. You just tell the story of Jesus, point people to the Bible and uh, you can be effective. Uh, so, I, I, you know, a, a lot of methods work really well. For us, what we tell folks is that we may be different than some of the others because we like to think that our approach is more like going to a medical doctor, where when you go to see a medical doctor, a medical doctor is going to have a diagnostic interview. He'll be trained to do, and then he's going to have diagnostic tests to determine what's really going on with any of uh, his or her patients. And we do the same thing. You know, I've got my training in diagnostic interviews at the University of Iowa when I was doing my doctoral work there. I sat in with the PhDs in counseling and we did a lot of stuff on how do you do an effective diagnostic uh, interview. Um, and then uh, what we'll tell folks is based upon the diagnostic interview and the test that we take, much like a medical doctor, we will be developing a treatment plan. Now for a doctor, it's gonna be medicine and whatever else. For us, it's behavioral tools. And like going to see a doctor, we're going to say, if we've done our diagnostic work well, uh, the tools that we give you will change your life uh, because we've had enough experience with these tools. We know how they work. Uh, and then, then the approach is not somebody comes in and we listen and listen. And if you offer a suggestion and a pretty non-directive, uh, we are pretty directive in our approach because we got tools that will change your life. And when you come in, we're going to coach you on how to use these tools with the expectation with proper coaching, you will get better if we did our diagnostic work well. And if we find out they're not getting better, we'll re-diagnose and find out what did we miss because it's not rocket science. You know, people are behaving poorly because they don't have effective behavioral tools. So anyway, that's the approach we use. So, so what would, how many tools would there, would you have and what would be examples of some of the things you would utilize to work with a couple after you found out what they needed to have happen? Yeah, typically when we do our diagnostic tests and the diagnostic interview, there's a myriad of issues that we see. Uh, we may see that there's some things based upon temperaments. You know, if you've got a, a driver personality type married to an amiable temperament type, you can count on the fact there's gonna be conflict because the amiable invariably doesn't wanna fight and the driver doesn't mind fighting. Uh, and the, the amiable is gonna feel like they're being controlled and the driver is gonna feel like this is the way it's supposed to be. So anyway, there, there are things that come out of temperament that you just know are gonna be uh, issues. But, but anyway, we'll make a call, as I say, like at the line of scrimmage. Generally, uh, where we're gonna start is with uh, uh, emotional things. If a couple, they can't talk effectively because they can't have a conversation without escalating out of control, that's where you gotta start because you can't do anything effectively if the husband and wife can't even talk to one another. So, uh, you know, we'll start with a tool, we call it rules for a good clean fight based upon direction that Paul gives the church in uh, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter four, 25 through 32. Uh, and the key thing we're trying to do there is to get a couple to get to the point where as Paul puts it in Ephesians four, 
2029. Don't let any unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, only such a word that meets the need of the moment that gives grace to the hearer. If you can't do that, don't talk. And that's one of the things we say. Take a time out. Don't talk. Because you, if you keep escalating the conversation, you're never going to get any better. I, I know some counselors, even some of the Twin Cities, when people are having significant conflicts, they'll say, well, you ought to have a date, you know, a breakfast date or a lunch date. And, and I've talked to at least a number of couples. I'm not saying that will never work. But if you've got a couple like the ones we see where they don't even know how to talk to one another and they're going to escalate when they start any conversation, it's, you know, that breakfast date is not going to work because they don't even know how to start talking. So anyway, we'll make a, a call of the line of scripture and say, this is the tool that we think we need to, to start with. And oftentimes it'll be this tool I mentioned, you know, rules for handling conflict. We did a, a training with the uh, NFL, NFL uh, mentors who are working with uh, former NFL players. And, you know, they, you know, what do you want to do? It's like, well, we, the two tools that we see are the ones that usually we start with the most is this one rules for conflict that gets you to the point where you stop talking when you're going to say something hurtful, which then begs the question, well, then how do we ever talk about anything <laughs> and get stuff on the table and get resolved, which then is our second tool. We call it our hear and be heard tool. This is how do you, how do you uh, address an issue with a soft start using John Gottman's kind of material uh, versus a harsh start? Uh, and how, how do you, you put it on the table so that people aren't going to get upset? And then how do you express yourself in such a way uh, that you're identifying your feelings, not condemning your spouse for their feelings? Uh, so that people can begin to understand, your spouse can understand, why do I feel so passionately about this? Well, you know, my family background or I have this fear or this insecurity. Those are the things we will coach people to say. And then the third thing is, what is a solution you'd like to suggest to your spouse on how to solve a problem? Uh, and then while you're doing all this, your spouse is listening. They can't interrupt. Uh, and that they then will have to say back, what did you say the issue was? What did, they, what did you say uh, uh, was what you felt about the issue on a personal level? What did you suggest was the solution? If they get that right, Usually we have an object like a pen or something. They pass the pen and then now they can take on the same issue. Uh, again, with a soft start, they can say what they feel. Usually it takes a lot of coaching because people want to condemn their spouse when they get to the feeling level. We'll help them with that. And then what's an alternative solution? So using this particular tool, we help couples get at solutions. Most people just get at arguments and they never solve anything because they don't get to the point where they're at solutions. So those would be two fun, kind of basic tools that would be beginning tools for us. And then again, depending on our diagnostic work, we might end up starting someplace else. You know, if if we if we see that uh, someone, uh, by virtue of what we see, they are high stress people, high anxiety people, high hostile people, we might use uh, something like Daniel Amen's work, uh, and he, he's he's done this thing on uh, on ants. That's a acronym for automatic negative thoughts, uh, and Ants are, uh, well, you know, that's like, we, I, we have this acronym uh, that, you know, that we use uh, for what's jabbing last. So J is jumping to conclusions. A is uh, always never thinking. B is blame, which is a red ant. N is negative filter. L is labeling like, yeah, you jerk. A is all or nothing thinking. Ed is should statements. You know, I should do this. You should do this. And, and then T is thinking with your feelings. So People, if they're using those sorts of ants, they will escalate. 
And so if we spot that it looks like somebody is just riddled with ants or uh, what David Burns calls cognitive distortions in his wonderful book, Feeling Good, The New Move Therapy, we may start there because if you if you got all these ants uh, in your life, you're going to be judging your spouse, judging yourself, and you're going to be stuck there. So we, we might do that. But that's all based upon the diagnostic work we do first that will then show us where, it, where are the issues and then by virtue of that, what's a good place to start? How many tools would you say you utilize or could utilize? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's got to be 50 to 100. I, yeah. I, you know, I don't know the exact count, but we have a lot. I mean, David Burns in his book on uh, feeling good probably has close to 30 tools just in how to deal with stress-related things. And one of the things I love about David uh, Burns' material, uh, he used to say that, that if you're feeling mad or bad or sad, unless it's, unless it's biochemically caused, if you follow the tools that he has in his book, in two weeks, you'll, 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 you'll get better. And I've been using David Burns uh, material since probably late 70s, and I found that's been true for me. Now, he's modified that more recently. Uh, uh, David Burns, uh, if your listeners don't know who he is, he's been at Stanford University for many, many years. He's our national expert on depression, uh, more than anybody that I, uh, that I know. Uh, but so now after, you know, 30 years of research at Stanford, he, he says, if you use his tools, you will see measurable change in 30 days. Most folks go to counseling for months and years, you know, trying to deal with this stuff. And he says 30 days, unless it's still some sort of biochemical thing, you should see significant change. So that's the kind of tool I like. Ones that are proven that you can get results in a reasonably short period of time. And there are plenty of them out there, you know, that, uh, that are that effective. Well, uh, let's talk about the church and how churches can help marriages. Um, the challenges of churches, uh, you know, my sense is a lot of pastors are overwhelmed. They're not sure what to do on the marriage front. Yeah. Uh, you know, they have a lot of responsibilities. So really, what, can, what do you see happening in the church area and what could be, what could happen to really train up, raise up marriage yeah. champions or marriage counselors. Well, there are too many pastors like me uh, that say I'm paid to, to preach and to lead. Um, and I just don't have margin for this. I'm not paid to do this. Uh, and uh, those pastors, and I was one of them, would say, well, there are experts uh, that have degrees in marriage and family counseling and resources uh, are in my community, wherever it may be. And I can just pass on my folks to them. And you can say, you know, that's, that's great if there was some sort of follow-up that we knew how effective uh, those counseling clinics really are and knew what was happening to our folks. But in my experience, most churches, when they make a reference like that, have no clue whether the couples that are being referred are helped in any way whatsoever. And the statistics in the local church, as far as how many divorces are we getting, may might might be slightly better than the world but not much mm -hmm. uh, certainly not what we should expect if we got god on our side and then you look at the you know the the uh, secular authors like michelle wiener davis and sue johnson and john gottman and uh, i mean you can go on and on and on and virtually every one of them is going to boast about an 85 percent success rate with their approach the church in my view not anywhere near uh that success rate uh, and it's because, you know, we just farming things out and we're not following up. We don't know who's doing what. 
Um, our uh, local authority here in the uh, Twin Cities is Dr. Bill Doherty from the University of Minnesota. And, and Dr. Doherty will say, in his opinion, most regular counselors are not going to do very well in marriage and family counseling because regular counseling is geared toward being one-on-one and making sure you're on the side of that person and you're the, you know, that you can, they can trust you and all of that. When you do marriage counseling, it's like, whose side are you on? And most counselors, according to Dr. Rigardi, are lost. They don't even, they don't know what to do with that. So even when they do marriage counseling, you know, they like to get people one-on-one because that's their comfort zone. The other thing that Dr. Doherty mentions, and I so totally agree with this, is that most people who do counseling, not the Michelle Wiener Davises or the John Gottmans, they don't have a plan. It's less, we're going to be non-directive, we're going to come here and we're going to talk and talk and talk, but we're not going to have a plan. You look at the ones that are 85% effective. These are people that aren't Christians necessarily, but they're 85% effective. They all have a plan. They know exactly where they're going. And then they have tools that they use to help people. And usually a lot of counselors don't do that. And oftentimes in the church, we don't know how to even introduce tools or what the, what the better tools are. So I, I'm not sure if I answered all your questions. Yeah. yeah. What, what, well, what would it look like? Or is it practical for churches? I mean, you've got mega churches who have staff, large staff potentially, or you've got a small church where you may have a pastor and maybe one other part-time person. Is it practical for churches to work to strengthen marriages? I mean, do they, they may not have the expertise of, with the PhDs and so forth, but can they practically, if they have a will and a vision for it, restore marriages? Well, that's a, you know, back when I started what I was doing in Iowa City, it was layman that I was training. Now, we'd always make sure that whoever did the diagnostic interview, if we were training somebody or counseling somebody rather, that it was somebody who had credentials because you, you know, you can get in the weeds in a hurry if you don't do the initial diagnostic work very well and you just throwing people to lay counselors and they have no clue what they're looking at, except, you know, we got the Bible on our side, which is obviously wonderful, but we don't know what we're looking at. Uh, you know, we're going to make a judgment based upon the last couple that we saw or my own marriage, you know, it's, and, and then you know, that can work. The disadvantage of that, however, in my opinion, is that if you don't do the diagnostic work and can't pinpoint exactly what's going on and make these calls of the line of scrimmage like we, like we do, based upon a very careful diagnostic interview and diagnostic tests that show you what's really going on, it's, it, it, it's, it's a little bit of a crapshoot. You don't know exactly where you're going and you just you know, make your best guess. But as, as far as uh, you know, what can churches do, anyone can become a champion, even if your pastor is not interested. Mm-hmm. There are lots of organizations like us that do training. We're uh, in the process of uh, developing our Friends First Responders training. We've been talking to Family Life, the arm of crew, uh, about how we'll be doing these trainings in mega centers around the country. And it would be designed to help people with tools like we have uh, to be able to help family members and friends uh, whose uh, marriages are in trouble. And there are, I mean, myriad of tools like that. So, you know, if you're at a church where you got a church staff or elder board or whatever that's not particularly interested, that you can still do something because there are plenty of organizations that can equip people. So, so George, if somebody came to you and said, you know, I'd like to be a marriage champion in my church. Yeah. I, I just have a, a real passion for it. I don't 
have background or training, what would you tell them or would you work with them or would you refer them or what, what could they practically do to create a marriage ministry in their mm -hmm. own church? Well, again, I can say we're not the only organization. And, and the short answer is yes, we do work with folks. Part of what we're uh, envisioning right now is, you know, being working in, in cities across the United States with, you know, several programs that we have uh, developed. It's all geared to raise champions. You know, wherever we go, we're trying to raise champions. The advantage of working with organizations like Crew uh, is they have such a huge reach and they can impact so many more people than, uh, than we can. And then we're working with another organization out of San Antonio uh, called uh, the San Antonio Marriage Initiative. The acronym is SAMI. They're going to be taking our products and going out initially into 18 different uh, communities. Uh, so uh, anyway, there are organizations like that that do this sort of thing. Uh, again, if somebody wants to do something, there are plenty of organizations where they can, they can get some help and begin uh, to, to learn some tools to become uh, more effective. Uh, in churches where we have gone, and we still do this, one of our products is a marriage counseling product. Uh, it's based upon my experience since the mid-70s where I said I began training a woman and then she would train a man. We'd raise up an army of people that could effectively do marriage counseling, not, not just mentoring, I mean, marriage counseling. And then we have developed a 300-page training manual. Uh, uh, Dr. Russ Berg on our staff, uh, he is he has introduced that at a number of churches here uh, in Minnesota. Uh, we've got a church in in uh, uh, Houston, Texas, where one of our associates, somebody I've trained personally, has a whole clinic where they're using our training uh, manual. And so, if a church says we would like to actually get to the point where we establish our own clinic, um, you know, we provide training. There would be others who would provide uh, training uh, uh, to do that uh, sort of thing. That would be more of a a church decision. It'd be tough for a layman on their own to decide we're going to do a clinic at a church. But if you got a pastor and a leaders in the church have a vision to do that, you know, there is a means to, to do that as well. We've talked previously, and I remember you mentioned that your church, I think it was in Iowa City, became recognized as the, the marriage church or a reputation in the community. Yeah. Talk yeah, about that church, a Every church that I pastored, uh, the reputation was, we're, this is the church that saves marriages. I mean, even our you know, most recent church we had here in Minnesota, the, uh, uh, here in Wyzetta, Wyzetta Evangelical Free Church, uh, people would come to our church for no other reason that they knew somebody whose marriage was saved, and they came to our church hoping that maybe we could help with their marriage too. So yeah, that was, that was the reputation. And you know, part of me is, how cool is that, where you know, we, we have that sort of reputation. Shouldn't the church have that reputation rather than, you know, people go to church and you find out people are getting divorced in church and seemingly similar numbers in, than in society. It's like, where are our power stories of what God is doing to save marriages? We shouldn't have them. Uh, there's a, um, a uh, you probably are familiar with the re is it re-engage uh, uh, program. Uh, there are a number of churches here in the Twin Cities that are beginning to use that. If, uh, you know, your listeners aren't familiar with that, I know Grace Church in town is doing that. It's, it's, it's probably the latest, greatest, you know, kind of program. It's wonderfully effective because they have great tools. Uh, and, and they have lots of stories that you're going to hear of what God did to, to save marriages. In my opinion, Retrovi, the Roman Catholic, uh, we can to retreat sort of thing. 
one of the strengths of that is the same thing. You hear wonderful stories of how God touched uh, the lives of people. And I'm just saying, where are all those stories? There should be a lot more of them, uh, you know, knowing that the church is the church and we got the power of God. I, I felt that marriage and family problems are really maybe one of the major felt needs in the broader community. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? That is, if a church became known as a marriage champion church or really a place to help marriages, it strikes me that's a tremendous outreach to the community if, if people in the community became aware of that. Well, just, you know, I look at, you know, TV and movies. How many functional families do we see in TV and in the movies these days? And then look at Hollywood, the examples of our Hollywood stars, how well are they doing with their own marriages? And then you just look, and look around, you know, how many of our friends and family have gotten divorced? Um, we do things overseas too. Uh, and I started off wanting to do evangelism overseas, but there are a lot of, especially limited access countries that won't let you come in if you're doing evangelism. What I've discovered, however, if you're coming in to help them with their marriages, you have an open invitation anywhere. I just found out uh, about a month ago, uh, the number two sheikh uh, in Israel. So this is one of the top Muslim leaders in the country of Israel. Uh, I got a chance to meet him on a Zoom uh, call and he found out who I was and what we do. Uh, and then uh, in talking to our contact in Israel, he told him afterwards, we really need to get Dr. Kenworthy to come to Israel to teach Muslims what the Bible says about marriage. So, and that's been my experience. People are desperate for any kind of help that they, they can get. Oftentimes people say, well, you, you know, you're a faith-based organization. Does that get in your way? No. When marriages are in trouble or you're desperate, you're looking for lifelines wherever you can, you can get them. Uh, in fact, uh, the Roman Catholic Church with Retrovi uses lifeline as, as sort of their tagline for what they do. But yeah, my experience is when people are desperate, they'll take any lifeline they can get. If they don't know Jesus at all and never prayed a day in their life, if I say, would you mind if I pray for, for you about your marriage? I've never had anybody tell me no. They want help. They just don't know where to get it. You've, you've mentioned that if a couple says, well, you don't understand my problems. Uh, you've never been through my pain. You've referred them to other couples. Talk about that and a little bit how effective that is. Yeah, we, we, we call that our Ambassadors of Hope uh, program. Uh, and, it's, uh, uh, and it's quite simply, you know, people whose marriages have been saved. Uh, and what we do uh, is, you know, counseling somebody, and I do get that response, you know, you know George or Dr. Kennedy, how can you possibly know what I'm going through? And I have to say, yeah, I don't. However, um, we got an army of folks, we call them our Ambassador of Hopes folks, that do know exactly what you're experiencing. And would you mind if I had somebody who has your same socioeconomic background, who is facing the same problems or has faced the same problems in their marriage that you're currently facing in yours, would you mind if I have them give you a call? You don't have to say anything. I'd just like you to listen to, to the story. And then after the uh, ambassador Pope shares the story, you're done. You don't have to do anything. Uh, just hear the story and you'll be in one of two places. You'll either say, you know, good for him or her that, you know, God did something for them. And it does look like there's some similarities, but I don't think God's going to ever do anything for me. Now, if that's your conviction, I got hundreds of other couples 
uh, or individuals, I could have call you and tell their story. And we, you know, I, I don't, we've never done more than one, usually because they do, we do the one, there's an immediate connection. And then when I tell folks, you know, you don't have to ever talk to this person again, that's in my experience, never what happens because there is a connection and they realize, well, this person really knows what I'm experiencing. And then you begin asking questions. So back in your marriage, did you feel this? And usually it is, yes, I did. And it's like another connection. Uh, and then they'll end up, you know, calling them even as we do counseling. So we're third session with Dr. Kenworthy and whatever woman I'm working with. In that third session, when Dr. Kenworthy said this, did you feel this? Oh, yes, I did. It's like, cool. And then, and then they're kind of the coach uh, through the process. It even got me to one point where you want to talk about, you know, being unconventional. I had my ambassadors of hope sit in on the counseling with the woman that I was training uh, and the couple. So we had six people in the room and then our coaches, you know, they were there for the counseling and then they could coach, you know, in between sessions to uh, help the couple. Now, again, anybody, any professional would say, this is not cost effective at all. And honestly, I don't care about it being cost effective. We want to do something that's going to save marriages. And, you know, we were seeing tremendous success in seeing marriages saved, but we did some pretty unconventional things. And that was one of them. The ambassador of hope idea, in my view, is not unconventional. It just makes sense. If you uh, got folks that can share their story of what God did for them, that's powerful. Hmm. Another thing we, you've mentioned to me in the past has been uh, communication dates. What are those and how do those work? Yeah, uh, I've, I've, showed, uh, I've told you many, many of the tools that we have are uh, me being desperate, not knowing what to do and saying, Lord, help me. I'm stuck. I have no clue what I'm doing. Uh, and then God gives me these crazy, crazy ideas that turn out to be wonderful. Uh, uh, one of those occasions, uh, I was preaching on love on a uh, Sunday morning, which is a pretty abstract concept. And in my background, it's important to come down the abstract ladder and express things in, in terms so that people can see what they need to do and get a sense of where they need to go so they can take the action step. So I'm preaching on love. That's abstract. I needed to come down the abstract ladder and I'm thinking, how can I do that? And I got the bright idea that I could ask my son who was around 10 at the time, how do you know I love you? And I thought, oh, this would be good. You know, kids say the craziest things, but you can see something good and the congregation will get a sense of how incredibly loving the Kenworthy family is. So I got my tape recorder and I went to George and, you know, turned on the tape recorder and I said, so George, how do you know that I love you? He did not hesitate. He said, dad, I don't know that you do. I turned the tape recorder off and I thought, oh my goodness, I can't play this on Sunday morning. And then immediately I had a second thought. If I asked my two daughters the same question, what would they say? And then I thought, if I asked my wife, what would she say? And I, I couldn't shake that. I mean, it just got me all upset. And then I said, I can't risk this. I, I don't want to ask anybody anymore because this was too painful the first time. So then I decided what we would do uh, is Valentine's Day was approaching. And so I said to the family, I want you all to uh, write a note to me on my Valentine's card on how I can love you in a way that feels like love to you. Because obviously, Although I thought I loved my son, he wasn't feeling it. So what can I do that is measurable uh, that will convince you that I love you? So they all did that. You know, they, you know, they uh, wrote out their, their messages to me that, uh, you know, that first Valentine's Day. 
Uh, and then I read the message from my wife and she said, the way that you can show me that you love me, the way that feels like love to me is by saying the words, I love you. Mm -hmm. It's like, I've read Chapman's book. I know about love language. I can do this. So for the next year, I was killing it. I was telling John, you know, your meal is fantastic. You're looking great today. This, you're just, honey, you're just so amazing. And all these words of affirmation. Uh, and I was very deliberate in what I was doing. And I was just killing it. So next Valentine's Day is now approaching. And I said to the family, I want to do the same thing again. I want everyone uh, to uh, write how I can love you in a way that is meaningful this next year. And we'll add to the list. Because you know, I've already nailed this words of affirmation stuff. We'll just add to the list and we'll get this to be deeper. So they all did the project. I got my notes, began reading the notes from him. And then I got to my wife's note. Uh, and this woman that I had just been killing it with, telling her how beautiful she is and how wonderful she is, she had the audacity to write on her note, the way that you can love me more this next year is by saying the words, I love you more. And it was devastating. It's like, what is the matter with this woman? Uh, and, and my second thought was, I give up. I've been killing it. I can't do any better than this. And then God caused me to pause, as he so often does. And George, why did you start this exercise? Well, Lord, it's because my son didn't know I loved him. Well, if your wife's writing, your wife wrote this note, what do you need to do? All right. So recommit myself to the task. And then that became the foundation for a communication date. And a communication date uh, is, you know, getting at this where you would, you know, you, you, you get with any member of the family. It doesn't need to be your wife. Uh, and you say this last week, I felt your love for me when, and then whatever they say, and we're looking for three things to happen. One that, you know, you're given an attaboy to the person, you know, that showed you love, which is, we don't give enough attaboys. It's usually bad, bad boy, bad boy, or bad girl. So it's, it's an attaboy. The second thing we want to have happen is that now that I have become convinced that I think I'm doing better than I am, and I need to learn. The second thing is to teach me how to love my wife in a way that feels like love to her. Um, and as she tells me, it, when you did this, I felt your love. Hopefully I'm smarter than Pavlov's dog and that you know famous Nobel Prize winning experiment where I get this positive reinforcement to love a particular way, I'm gonna repeat that behavior. So that's the second thing we wanna have happen. And then over time, when that behavior is repeated, then when I, I my wife senses you know, that I'm continuing to let her know that I love her by words. She's going to look at me and say, I know why he is working so hard at this because he knows what it means to me. What a sweetheart George is for doing that. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's that. So that's, that's kind of the foundation for what we do in a communication date in our family. This has just become part of who we are. And I get love notes for my family every Christmas, every Easter, every father's day, every birthday, letting me know how they know that I love them. And, and maybe you had to be in the point where, you know, you were a failure in showing love like I have been to, to appreciate the significance of that. But I'll tell folks, if you can begin to get to the point where you do that, you've just divorce proofed your marriage as people are getting divorced in America because they're not feeling loved by their spouse mm -hmm. and you tremendous security for your family. If you got a son or daughter who is absolutely convinced mom and dad cherishes them you know, you've, you've uh, established tremendous security uh, for, for the home and for your kids as well. So anyway, that's, that's kind of the, I mean, we'll do a, a couple other things with the communication date, but that's kind of the, the heart of it. Oh, that's great. That's, that's, that's really wonderful, practical. Um, 
a question for you. Uh, in your book, uh, Before the Last Resort, you said there are three key questions to saving a marriage. Uh, do you believe there's a God? Are you willing to apply the principles of the Bible to your life? And will you pray for God to strengthen you and your spouse? What maybe get to the background of why you see those as the three yeah. key questions? I said, unless anything that I do that has any meaning, it's either my wife asked me to do it or the Lord convicted me because I was heading the wrong direction. Uh, in this particular case, uh, it was I was heading in the wrong direction and God convicted me. Uh, you know, I, I, I was seeing some folks for counseling and I just felt inept. And you don't have to be a pastor to feel this way. Obviously, layman can feel the same way. I didn't know what to do. Uh, so people are coming, wanting some help. I didn't. I, I felt I could pray for them. I didn't know what else, well, what else I even had to offer. I mean, I was a young pastor. Maybe that's the excuse, but I didn't know what to do. Uh, uh, but I, you know, I, I'm a, working on my PhD in Bible. Have a THM in Old Testament. I'm MDiv from Trinity, and I'm a Bible guy. But I didn't know what to do. And so as I'm crying out to the Lord, Lord, I'm stuck. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Uh, is one of these uh, experiences where you just feel God convicting and saying, so you believe in the Bible? Well, yes, Lord, you know, I believe in the Bible. Well, challenge people to do what the Bible says. It's like, Lord, I'm doing that. I, I'm an expository preacher. I love the Bible. I teach the Bible. And then it was challenge people to do what the Bible says. And that's when it, I was convicted to get bolder in standing on the principles of scripture and, and, and saying to a husband and wife, the Bible is clear about marriage and divorce. The Bible is clear about conflict. The Bible is clear about what to do with anger. The Bible is clear about, I mean, a lot of these things that are practical issues. Will you do what the Bible says? And then for me, it was the conviction that the Bible will have answers for folks, practical down to earth answers that can change their life. I don't know why as a graduate of seminary and as a Bible guy and a preacher, I hadn't already believed that, but I didn't. And that conviction was revolutionary. So that really is question two. So I started there and then it kind of led to uh, uh, the, uh, the, the question one, which is kind of the starting point for me. I was stuck, didn't know what to do. And that question one is kind of rooted in that, you know, being stuck and all of us on, on occasions and especially folks that are that are married in a difficult marriage, they get stuck and they don't know what to do. And my suggestion is when you're stuck and you don't know what to do, do you believe God is a creator God who created the universe and he's never, ever stuck? If that's true, you may be stuck, but he is not stuck. So will you pray to God, the creator of the universe? that he will show you something, give you something to get you unstuck. So that was kind of the second. And then the, the third part of this, uh, a lot of this came to me from the book of Ephesians, and I'm reading the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter one, uh, Paul declares uh, that we should pray to the Father about the Father and then recognize that the Father in heavenly places has all strength, all power, all riches. Uh, and you should pray for that. And you look at the problems in the church uh, uh, for the church of Ephesus that are delineated in chapters four through six. They were a weak church, uh, chapter uh, four, first part of chapter four. They were weak in relationships, uh, four, 17 to 32. They were weak in their walk, chapter five. They were weak in their marriages, five, 17 and following. They were weak in their families, chapter six. They were weak in the job. They were just weak across the board. And what does Paul pray? Pray that the eyes of your heart might be open 
so that you can see God in heavenly places, having all strength, all power, all might. So that's the third question. Do you believe that when you are stuck, you don't know what to do, relational problems are bad, family is bad, everything's bad, that what we need to do is say, God, give me what I don't have. This power from heaven that I need to, to, uh, uh, to make the next step. So that's the foundation for the three questions. But like so much in my life, it started for me needing these questions more than anybody else because I was stuck. I didn't even know where to start. Wow. Well, that's great. Well, let, let's, let's move on and talk about a couple of uh, initiatives or programs you've created. Uh, uh, the first one is Friends First Responders. Uh, maybe describe what that is and, you know, is it something that's available to people and we'll just kind of go from there. Yeah, what that is, again, it's a, a coming out of yet another frustration. I had uh, had the privilege of going to a lot of military bases. I don't know how many, I mean, 30, 40 military bases, I suppose. Coming in as a marriage and family speaker, I was the third time at Joint Base lewis McCord. Uh, in the uh, Seattle uh, area, again, coming in as a marriage uh, speaker. And as I was there, I was thinking, how would I know if we're doing anything that is measurable in the military? I mean, it's one thing to, you know, speak and you tell a joke and people laugh and you give a message. People say, oh, great message, Pastor. But, but that doesn't mean any marriages are really being saved. So how would I know? And I've been at a lot of military bases uh, to that point. And what I knew about the military is if G.I. Joe He's got a marriage problem, especially if he's a pilot. He's not going to tell anybody because he could get grounded. And for those pilots, the last thing they want is not to be able to fly their plane. Uh, so the guy is not typically going to tell anybody anything. But his wife usually will tell her girlfriend what's going on. And oftentimes that girlfriend will get on the girl's team and help the wife deal with the jerk husband, but not do much of anything to help the marriage. So then it struck me, uh, you know, as I'm praying and saying, Lord, what can we do uh, that if we could somehow develop a program to reach that girlfriend to help the wife, uh, it could be transformative. So uh, we developed uh, years ago now uh, what we call Friends First Responders uh, and Friends First Responders is designed to help it, men too, uh, any, any, any family member, friend, know what to say so they can help your brother, your sister, your cousin, your niece, your nephew, I mean, whatever, help them be pointed in a direction where more likely the marriage is going to be saved because most of us just don't know what to do. So this is not a marriage program. It's not a mentoring program. It presumes if you're alive and you know anybody who might be having a marriage problem, you're, you're going to be in a position to influence them so it'd be a good idea to know how to influence them in a direction that's going to be helpful. So that's what it's all, all about. And, and right now we have, uh, uh, we, we have been working hard in this for many, many years. We've been doing this program for, I don't know, 25, 30 years or so, I suppose. But we've gotten to the point now uh, where we put it in a digital format and it will be in the fall. Uh, the whole thing is going to be available in a digital format. We have a professional filmmaker so that's doing our video, it'll be first rate. Um, uh, it's Dr. Uh, Amanda Horton and myself that are the, uh, the they'll be the leaders, you know, giving the, the training at seven lessons and how you can become more effective in helping a family member or friend get pointed in the right uh, direction. And then I mentioned family life, the arm of crew, they're very interested in, a, in, in a, using this in variety of cities across the country. And then Sammy is the other one. They'd like to do this in 18, uh, 18 communities 
uh, around the country. So um, when we get this done, it, it's anybody. You don't have to be part of those organizations. You know, you can come to our website. Um, we'll have this set up so that individuals can stream the training either one lesson at a time. There's seven of them. Or you can do it over a two-day period or a three-day period or whatever you want. I just completed our facilitator's manual this last week uh, that is specific directions. Uh, one of the first things we say in the facilitator's manual is you don't need to know anything about anything in order to be a facilitator. Uh, you just need to be out with some friends that you can invite to a meeting. And then in our facilitator's manual, we have uh, breakout sessions that are all written out. You just read what it says and let the people discuss it. Uh, and then, the, it, again, you're going to stream a video, and as you follow the video, there'll be two options. One option is you get to the point where it's, you have a breakout session, the video goes to soft music playing, and then, you know, when the soft music stops and we start, then your group comes back together. That's just as a facilitator, you don't have to do anything. Uh, the other option is you can stop the video, and then you can do whatever discussion, do whatever you want to uh, do, and then start the, the video again. But anyway, that that is going to be available probably we'll have all of our work done about the end of May uh, and then looking to have uh, family life do a rollout uh, in, the, in the fall, hopefully Sammy in the, in the fall. And then anybody can come to our, ultimately to our website <clears throat> and do the training. So you don't have to do it through those organizations. I mean, individual churches, individuals, anybody could, uh, could come, and, come and do that. Well, g give a couple examples of how this plays out. Let's say, you know, a friend of yours is, talks about they're having struggles in their marriage. What would, what would you do or what would a first responder do? Yeah, well, a first responder, a lot of it is being aware of, of uh, what not to do as well, because typically, uh, you know, we, we have uh, you know, several different scenarios that we talk about. Uh, a lot of folks, when they're with a friend, uh, you know, we say they make it about them or make it about me. Uh, you, you tell me about the story with your, your, your family. And it's like, oh, Tom, I know what actually should talk about. My wife's exactly the same way. And then instead of really listening, they preempt the person by talking about their story and assume that, you know, their experience is the experience of their other friends. So we'll show the danger of that. And then we'll show a better way to approach your, uh, your friend uh, constructively. And a lot of it is teaching people how to really listen, because usually we don't listen very well. Uh, when we're visiting with our friends, we jump to conclusions and throw in our stuff. Or another one is being overly sympathetic. Women can especially be this way with their friend. So their friend, you know, says, you know, I'm married to this jerk husband. This is the last thing he did. And then the reaction, oh, you poor thing. I can't believe you put up with this kind of verbal abuse and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and if a friend is saying that, they are not supporting the marriage. Uh, they're being overly sympathetic. So it is, you got to stop doing that kind of stuff. And then uh, what you want to do uh, is to, to suggest to, the, uh, to this wife who feels like she's being abused, have you gotten any help? Has your husband got any help? And here are some resources and places where you can go to get the help that you need to get past the issue that you're talking about. So a, a lot of it is making folks aware of what those resources are and then, and then how, to, how to even approach the subject. So you take, for example, someone, this is fairly typical. Wife comes in and says, oh, our marriage is in the, uh, in the tank because my husband's an alcoholic. Now you're a friend or family member. What are you going to do with that? Um, you, if, unless you are a professional and have the ability to diagnose whether someone has uh, alcoholism, 
it's like you could say, I can't do anything with that. But we tell folks, well, yes, you can. Uh, because if, if that becomes the sticking point, what you can suggest to your friend, especially if it's the friend that's being accused of being the alcoholic, uh, suggest they get diagnosed by a professional uh, and, and deal with this once and for all. And then if you get diagnosed and the professional says, no, you're not an alcoholic, well, then you better put, put a nail on the ground and say, then that's it. You, don't, you can't keep bringing this up and accusing somebody of being an alcoholic who's been assessed. But a friend can suggest that course of action. Uh, you know, let's, let's instead of let this continue to be a sore point, this is a, an effective way we can address this. So there are those sorts of things that we suggest along the way for folks with uh, those kinds of things that come up. Uh, you know, we break things down uh, into soft reasons for people having marital issues and hard reasons. Uh, hard reasons are the triple A, adultery, abuse, addiction. We do make some suggestions on what to do if you've got a friend who is saying somebody is guilty of adultery, abuse, and addiction. The soft reasons is everything else. And we do have a lot of practical suggestions. You know, we're not compatible. We don't love one another. You know, we'll address that and give some clues on what to do if somebody says, I just don't love my spouse any, anymore. That is not a hard reason. That's a soft reason. And I think we've got some pretty effective tools for addressing that. How, how do these uh, soft or hard reasons play into divorce? What is it usually leads somebody to divorce? Is it the hard issues or are they the soft ones? way more soft issues uh, because it, it, yeah it's way more soft issues that lead to divorce you know in my experience it is we were just not compatible or we don't love one another or I don't love him anymore uh, that's the, the, those are the things I hear more than anything else so in my experience especially for Christians and that's who I tend to see it's more the soft reasons as the reasons for us getting uh, getting a divorce uh, and, and 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 as a pastor, I wasn't the counselor. I still was paid to preach and to lead. So I got involved when it was really tough issues. You know, the typical person or couple that I would see is somebody had committed adultery. They're in an adulterous affair. They don't want to give up the adulterous affair. They've been to a counselor too already that has given up on them and told them they've given up on them. And then those are the folks that I've ended up seeing. Uh, and there was a period where we were seeing about a 90% success rate in seeing those marriages saved. Um, and it's, you know, again, back to the three questions, I'll ask the three questions. And, uh, even, uh, when somebody says, I don't love my wife anymore, I never love my wife. And I want out of this marriage. And I got two counselors that told me I should get out of my marriage. Um, we've still seen God save those marriages, but. Mm, wow. Um, well, let's, let's talk about the, the other program, uh, discernment counseling, explain what that is and who that's useful to use. Yeah, well, I was a part of a think tank for two, two and a half to three years where we're trying to figure out, you know, what is what is what the church needs the most in terms of helping folks. And we had a bunch of pastors and church leaders that uh, gathered and sat on this uh, on this think tank. And what we concluded is uh, there are a couple of fundamental problems that at least the churches we represented face. One is this Rolodex mentality that the pastor is going to use the Rolodex to farm everybody out to the various counseling cl clinics. And then we have no clue what's happening. And the end result is not much is happening in terms of, you know, saving marriages or at least have any stories to tell about a save, uh, a saved marriage. So, you know, that was, uh, that was one of the fundamental problems. The other thing that we determined that was fairly universal is that uh, we had a lot of folks in churches 
there might be one person that wanted to save the marriage and another one that was leaning out of the marriage and not interested. And usually that freezes a, a pastor or a church or a Christian. Well, if they're not interested in marriage counseling, what are you going to do? Or if they're not willing to talk about the problems in their marriage, they won't seek counseling or go anywhere. What are you going to do? Uh, so we then developed a program about what do you do with a leaning in spouse couple and a leaning out spouse couple. And that's what this, you know, we it's called the pause program in the court system here in the, uh, in the Twin Cities. And basically what we're saying to folks who are contemplating a divorce, we like to suggest that you pause your divorce for six months. Um, and what we'd like to do in that period of time is give you tools that'll help you become a better person, a better parent, uh, learn how to better effectively communicate with this person, either you want to divorce or they want to divorce you. And what do you got to lose? Because we can guarantee you will get better. And that's kind of our approach. We know our tools work and people will get better if they use the tools. So that's what we'll say. And then we'll ask them to put the divorce on hold for six months. And if in six months they want to get divorced, more power to you. I'm not saying don't get a divorce. Now, obviously we don't want them to get the divorce and we're confident if they get the tools, we'll see the marriage is saved. And that's often what we see. So that's, that's what it is. Uh, it's, it's directed right at that couple that we as pastors within the Twin Cities have said is one of our biggest issues. We don't know what to do uh, when you've got somebody who won't go into counseling and they're leaning out and they're finally for divorce and they're just done. Uh, how do you approach that couple? That's what this program is designed to get at. So the friend first responders is kind of uh, for everybody. It's yes. Lay yes. couples, anybody. Whereas the discernment counseling is geared towards pastors, any other people? Pastors and lawyers, uh, because uh, it's, it's, it's anybody, uh, anybody who is talking to somebody where there might be a leaning out spouse. So back to what I said before, every senior pastor has people coming to them with their marriage problems. And if, he, if he's got people coming to him, or if one of them is leaning out of the marriage, and, he, and, it's, and it's in this day and age, it's guaranteed that's going to happen. Well, at least he needs to be aware of this material so he knows what to do. That doesn't mean he's got to do the counseling because the discernment counseling you can do in one or two sessions. So you do it in one or two sessions. You get a sense of how to encourage somebody to say there is a program for you that it can help you still become a you know, better parent, better person. So we're saying anybody who has any reason to talk to anybody whose marriage is in trouble would benefit from at least the you know, there are a couple of lessons of this. So it'd be family lawyers, it'd be pastors of any kind, youth pastors, they're going to talk to people too. We're not turning them all into marriage and family counselors, but they're seeing these folks. And oftentimes when you got this leaning on spouse, you don't know what to do. This will help them know what to do, where to direct them to get the help they need. Okay. Well, that's great to hear about those programs. Um, I guess in the last part, I'd, I'd be interested in turning to some practical tips that you would have that you found in your own marriage or you found with other couples to have a successful marriage? What are the key practical steps, you know, we all need to do to have a, a great marriage? Billy Graham was once asked the question, what is the success, what was the reason for the success of your marriage to Ruth? And he responded by saying, we've learned to become really good forgivers. And, it, you know, I do a lot of reading of secular you know, counselors and, well, it's, you know, th those are more at a philosophical level. They have programs. I've, I've tried to read everything I can on that. It's interesting to me as you look at the secular researchers, the ones that are boasting 85% success rate, 
they have had to add to their approach a new element, forgiveness, because they've recognized if you can't forgive a spouse that has hurt you, you're dead in the water. Uh, and so you can back that up. And with my faith tradition, uh, grace and forgiveness go hand in hand. Uh, and I, another you know, failure story of mine. So I'm a student in Chicago uh, at Trinity Seminary in Chicago and regularly on the Dan Ryan Expressway, which is a madhouse. And I find myself getting frustrated on the Dan Ryan Expressway because all these idiot drivers in Chicago, if you've been there, it's awful. I mean, they cut you off. I mean, they, they're driving faster than they should. And I found myself almost ready to swear. Didn't, almost ready, you know, swear. But I'm getting angry at these idiot drivers in, uh, in Chicago. And then I had, again, one of these moments of conviction uh, where I'm reflecting on what's happening as I'm getting all frustrated driving on the Dan Ryan Expressway in Chicago. And God convicted me about what really was happening. So it's like, okay, George, apparently you believe that when St. George gets on the Dan Ryan, everyone is supposed to behave. And I had to say, yep, Lord, that's, that's pretty much what I want. And could it be there are sinners on the road that are going to behave like sinners? Uh, and could it be, George, you're one of those sinners? Uh, and, and the starting point for every sinner is acknowledging I am a sinner still. I need God's grace. I need God's forgiveness. And if I get God's grace and forgiveness, proof of that is I show it to others including those idiot drivers <laughs> in, in Chicago. And then it, that kind of played out a little bit uh, more for me. So this is a, a key verse for us in one of our tools. It's Ephesians 4, uh, uh, 32. Be kind and compassionate toward one another, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Uh, that is kind of a starting point. You know, in, in churches that I, I attend, we talk about grace if we know grace, I mean, really know grace, we understand how desperately we need it even today. If I get that, well, then I'm going to show grace to my wife. She didn't have to be perfect in what she does. And for me as a pastor, again, another one of my mistakes, uh, you, you know the statement, uh, pastors are paid to be good and the laymen are good for nothing. Uh, and, you know, that's funny until you're a pastor and you feel like, I'm being paid to be good. So I better have a good wife. I better have good kids. I mean, we got to be above reproach because that's what's expected of us. And so you start putting demands on your wife and your kids that are unfair. Yeah, no grace here, just judgment, because we got a standard we got to meet and it's perfection. And then uh, with all this, uh, you know, Dan Ryan experience and everything else, it's like, all right, George, if you know God's grace, then you need of all people to be forgiving to your wife, forgiving to your kids. You need to show grace to everybody. And I think that's what Billy Graham was getting at. It is a starting point. And I, and I think it's not a secret as to why secular uh, marriage and family people are now introducing grace as pivotal to what they need to help people understand if they're going to get past the, the problem. So that would be one. Uh, and, and I think a pretty essential starting point is kind of at the heart of what Christianity is about. What about connecting, uh, you know, a couple say, well, we're not in love anymore and or practical ways to reconnect at, I guess, at an emotional level, you know, yeah. emotions or deeper, deeper level. You know, I think invariably, you know, when you're dating or you're entering into the relationship, you're almost naturally there. But then once you get married, you start to 
go separate ways almost. What what are some practical yeah. tips? To well, well, some of it is understanding why people feel like they have disconnected. Uh, and and when we're married, uh, you know, the stakes are much higher than what we were when we were dating uh, because we share a marital bed and sexual issues are one of the major things I've seen with couples over, over the years. In addition to that, if God blesses us with kids, we got kids. And invariably, mom and dad can have different ideas on how to discipline the kids. And then in addition to that, you know, over against when I was dating, we have a checkbook. And uh, often money issues are critical and we have differences of opinion and how to spend the money. Uh, so what I've seen happen, I mean, those would be three critical areas or more than that. What I see happen is that we disagree on what should happen in the bedroom. Not enough frequency, not enough quality. I mean, whatever it is, but there's a disagreement. And it gets to be so painful, we don't talk about that anymore. And then there are disagreements about disciplining the kids. We talk about that. We get upset. We escalate every time we talk about it. We get to the point it's not safe to talk about that anymore. We don't talk about that anymore. Uh, and then we have disagreements about money. You know, Somebody's trying to control me with money. I don't like what you're doing with the money. Uh, we escalate. We have difficulties. We get to the point we can't talk about that uh, anymore. And then along comes somebody of the opposite sex that I just get to know. And as a Christian, I am, I'm not interested in sex or having an affair. It's just nice to have a woman talk to me that thinks I'm a cool guy. And we can get to the point where we can just talk about anything. And of course, the reason for that is stakes are low. Don't share a bed, hopefully, if you're a Christian. Uh, not sharing a checkbook, don't have any kids. So of course, you can talk about anything. And then those uh, problems with your spouse continue on and it gets harder. And then you become more confidential with this friend. And this friend then becomes a soulmate. I don't know how many times I've heard they become my soulmate, my best friend. And then the next thing that happens with so many of these couples comes right out of Genesis 2. Uh, they are naked and they're not ashamed. And you say, what just happened there? Uh, in Genesis 2, God lays out his design for marriage. Uh, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helpmate suitable for him. You say, well, what's that saying? Well, your wife is supposed to be your best friend, not this person they're sharing all this other stuff with. But I get it. If you can't talk to your wife about the things that matter, she's not your best friend anymore. And, you know, this stranger comes along and they become your, your, your best friend. And then uh, make a helpmate suitable for them. The word helpmate is the Hebrew word Eitzer. Uh, in the word Ebenezer, we see it a variety of other places. Uh, Eitzer is used primarily in the Old Testament the way God helps uh, an individual grow emotionally, physically, spiritually. So what's that mean about a spouse? God put her in my life to help me grow emotionally, spiritually, physically. And you say, that's what's supposed to happen. That's God's design for, for marriage. So um, Keller, in his book on marriage, you know, says uh, out of Ephesians 5, the purpose of marriage is so we can sanctify one another. The uh, truth of the Bible is you're marrying a sinner who needs help, and it's your job to sanctify them. That's what marriage is all about. Well, that's also rooted in Genesis in Genesis 2. So part of what we do to try to help people is to say, I get it. I know why you don't feel like you love your spouse anymore. And I know if you know they've got this other person, I know why you feel this other person is your soulmate, they're your best friend. Because, I mean, those are the words we hear people use. Because here's what's happened. You know, you had all these things you couldn't talk about because of escalation, about not having effective tools. And you got to the point where you drifted from your spouse. that They were no longer your best friend. They weren't helping you grow. 
emotionally, physically, spiritually, quite the opposite. They were attacking you and tearing you down, making you feel worse. So God's design for marriage wasn't happening. And then Satan developed a counterfeit where you now found somebody you're telling me they had helped you grow emotionally and spiritually and physically, and they are your best friend. Do you see that's God's design for marriage, not God's design for a friend who's outside your, uh, your marriage. So when we understand what's happened, then we can say, well, can we do anything about the fact that you got to the point where you couldn't talk about sex, couldn't talk about money, couldn't talk about discipline on the kids or whatever else it is. And the answer is yes, we can. We can help you with rules to, to mitigate the escalation. You know, our, as I mentioned, we often start with our, our rules for conflict and then rules for how do you put an issue on the table, sex or money or discipline on the kids with a soft start, uh, reflecting what you really feel and getting to solutions that can work. Because people we see that have gotten to that point where they're in love with this, this new best friend, they don't have those sort of tools. So, uh, you know, what I'll do with folks is say, I know right now to, to ask you to say you love your spouse, I'm not going to do that. I get why you can say, I don't love my spouse right now. But trust me, uh, we have tools to help you get to the point uh, where we can address these issues that have gotten you to this point. Um, and uh, let's begin the process and see what God does. So that's, I know that's kind of a truncated version of the method, but that's what we do. No, no that's great. Um, well, let's let's kind of start to wrap it up. Um, if somebody comes to you or, or what would you say to somebody who says, I want to be a marriage champion? What would, what steps practically should they take to, to become that? You know, obviously probably their own marriage is enters into the equation, but then also as you're looking outside your own marriage to others, what, what, what does one need to do to become a marriage champion? Yeah. And that's kind of a loaded question. Um, you know, there are some people who think they're ready to be marriage champions and they're not. So I, I, I probably want to qualify them first uh, to determine who are they really. Uh, and because, uh, you know, for us, a, a marriage champion is somebody first and foremost who's got a relationship with Jesus that's real. Not everybody who wants to be a marriage champion necessarily is, is that. Uh, so we, we want to make sure we know about their relationship with Jesus. I'd want to know that they are teachable uh, because... Some people just want to spout whatever they have and they're not genuinely teachable. I'd want to know that they're readers because, you know, that's one of the ways in which you grow that, you know, you do that. I want to know about their listening skills because if being a counselor, what you're anxious to do is tell people what to do and you don't know how to listen effectively. It's like you're never going to be a marriage champion if you don't know how to listen. So uh, there, you know, there are a number of things that, you know, we say we don't ever put out an ad apply to be marriage champions here for that very reason. We just, we, we'd rather spot somebody and say, can we help you? Um, and even with these, uh, these programs that we have now, we're trying to raise uh, marriage champions with our friends first responders program and what we do with our discernment counseling, and other things that we do uh, in those settings, when you have a whole group of people coming, the way we determine a marriage champion is what happens after the training. A marriage champion is going to make a difference. Uh, uh, in, in part, they're going to make a difference because they have people uh, that they can influence. Uh, if, if you're in the marriage champion category, you're going to have people who want to follow you. Uh, you're going to have people that are going to be influenced by you. And that kind of gets sorted out if we do a general training by what happens after the training. 
because we will do follow-ups to our trainings afterwards and then ask people. So six weeks since the training, have you used the material in the training to help anybody? If so, tell us about it. And then if you're trying to use the material to help somebody, it didn't work, tell us about that too. And then we have advanced level training for the true champions to help them get better. Uh, this is kind of a, I didn't answer your question as directly as, as, I, as I could have. I wish, it, I wish we could just, anybody who wants to be a marriage champion, come here and you all become marriage champions. We, that's what we want to do is create champions. It's been a lot harder than just, you know, putting an announcement in the bulletin and say, all marriage champions come forward here and you'll be a marriage champion. Well, and I wonder if there are people who could be or are marriage champions, but they don't realize it. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, like you said, you start with a relationship with Christ, you know, kind of the, the triangle yeah. God at the top and you at your spouse at the bottom. But uh, also, you know, having demonstrating in your own life, your own marriage, that that's pretty critical that you can't really maybe be effective if you're to go out and reach out to other people if your own marriage is not in the best place. In some respects, if you have a dynamic, solid marriage, that's going to be a huge testimony in and of itself. Yeah, our best marriage champions are people that have gone through our counseling and have seen the tools work. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm working with a, uh, uh, a former safety with, within the NFL and training he and his wife to become marriage champions in the NFL. Uh, and they needed our tools to save their own marriage. And, and, and they are evangelists for our tools because they've seen the tools work. And you say, so for them, uh, you know, they, they started doing this marriage counseling. We get together after they have a session with this couple they're working with. So it's kind of like when I first started teaching Hebrew in seminary, you, you know, I was, I was just about a year or so ahead of the students. Uh, and you don't have to be too far ahead of somebody you're trying to disciple as long as you're ahead of them. Uh, so for this couple... You know, they'll share how wonderful these tools have worked for them. And that's really all they need. You know, have we experienced something that has made a difference for us that we can now explain in such a way that it's practical and down to earth and somebody else can use. So in their case, I am doing the diagnostic work for them and then I'll tell them what it means. Tell them what it means. So they'll do the test. I'll interpret the test. I'll tell them what the test means. And then, with, and then I'll even tell them, here's given these tests, this is where you should start with your friends and the first session, and then it's tools. And they know the tools because they, you know, we've spent two years introducing tools to them and they got to the point where they can master the tools. So, you know, back to, you know, the real essence of your question, if your marriage is working, you can help anybody. Mm. And if you've got transferable tools that you can say, this is a tool that I've used that has really helped my marriage, you can share that tool with somebody and help somebody else. It's as simple as that. Just a thought comes to mind. Are there any books or out there that you found to be especially helpful? Materials on marriage. It could be practical. It could be maybe even more biblical, theological, or uh, on, on a philosophical level, Keller's stuff. I found to be uh, I found to be helpful. Uh, as far as practical books, there's so many of them. I mean, I. I use a lot of John Gottman's stuff because uh, his relationship cure book is, 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 hasn't gotten as much attention as his, his, uh, his, his book on the clinic, whatever the name of that one is. It's got clinic name. But the relationship cure was a better book for me. Very, very helpful and, uh, and fundamental. A lot of really helpful practical tools because he is so practical uh, in, it, uh, in, his, uh, in his approach. 
Um, well, I, you know, I'm, if, if David Burns in terms of a tool, you know, feeling good, the new mood therapy, tremendous resource in helping people that are uh, experiencing stress because he's got so many tools in that book that are, uh, you know, that are helpful. Um, good, good, good. Well, if someone would like to get more information uh, about Hope for the Hurting Home, uh, the idea of their tools they could use, things get help in their own marriages, where, where would you send them or how Just can they go get to, it? Go to our website, hopeforthehurtinghome.com. And then there's a place where anybody needs information. They just click on that. It's info at hopeforthehurtinghome.com. Uh, then we'll get their request and then uh, react accordingly. Okay. And are there any last things you'd like to say? Any final comments and reflecting on our time? Well, I'm just, well just for us, I, you know, we're encouraged uh, by just what God has been doing in the marriage and family field. Um, you know, there are organizations like the San Antonio Marriage Initiative that's got a pretty significant footprint and Crusade, or Crew rather, it's got a huge footprint. And they have just reimagined their strategy for how they're going to deal with marriage and family issues. Uh, it used to be the family life uh, focused on uh, their radio program, you know, for years, you know, the Rainy and Bob Lapine, Dennis Rainey, Bob Lapine. They're still doing that. And then their Weekend to Remember conferences. Uh, but because they now have crew leadership, in my, my opinion, that's why, crew has always been about discipleship and evangelism and multiplication. Uh, they've changed their strategy in the last year and saying, we now want to disciple and we want to go to the cities like Denver and Oklahoma City and Minneapolis and you know, major cities across the United States and raise up marriage champions. So they just reimagined their whole approach uh, to marriage with the view they want to raise up champions and do something that is measurable. And that excites me because you do something that that is that strategic, it should make a huge difference, especially when you got the strength of, of uh, two big organizations, Sammy and, and then crew, you know, standing behind this. So I'm, I'm encouraged uh, by what I see. I think uh, there's a new landscape with uh, more resources that are going to be available to folks who want to help. Uh, and we should have a lot more stories that we're going to hear about what God is doing in saving marriages. Well, thank you, George. Really appreciate your time. You're welcome. My privilege.